welcome to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're an entrepreneur driven by your faith or want to be driven by your faith, then you're in the right place. The best way to stay connected is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast doesn't exist without you, our community. One of the things that the community has asked us for is helping connecting them with like-minded faith-driven investors. We're in the process of launching Marketplace, a new platform to present your venture and connect with like-minded investors that are serious about honoring God as you are. Everything from philanthropic to market rate deals, from here in the U.S. to emerging markets. Check it out at faithdriveninvestor.org forward slash marketplace. While you're there, please send us any thoughts you have about how this podcast might better serve you or any questions you might have about being a faith-driven entrepreneur. I know each time when I went through pain, I know he has another plan for me. Each time I went through a difficulty, I knew something's going to happen to me. So now I know that he has another plan for me. And I don't know what's the plan. I, I prayed so many times before I came for this interview. I said, Lord, I'm I just like Moses. I'm not a good speaker. <laughs> and I feel shy. I don't know how to put testimony all together. I don't want to disappoint you. So I please ask him to put his word in my mouth. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Rusty. Henry, William, and myself are pretty excited to give you today's episode of FDE because the story you're about to hear is one filled with suspense, love and romance, fascinating experiences, some almost hard to believe, but all believable because our guest tells it just like it is. You see, in the late 1990s, Dunkin' Donuts found it so hard to break into the Los Angeles donut market that they just gave up. Why? Because of the Donut King. Ted Nagoy has opened over 70 donut shops in an effort to give Cambodian refugees a chance to earn a living and make it in America. At one point, his donut empire netted him over $20 million and a presidential award for achieving the American dream from George H.W. Bush. Then he lost everything. We want you to listen in as Uncle Ted takes us through every up and down of his unbelievable but believable story. Henry, take it away. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast, back here in our virtual headquarters. And I'm here with my co-hosts and partners, Rusty Roof and William. And I think that we're looking at recording podcasts for something around maybe 150 stories now, guys. Amazing. Amazing. You know, this is our first recording in 2021. So I we have to give William one moment, even though people will be listening to this later, to go ahead and gloat a little bit about his Alabama Crimson Tide Whatever you, whatever they roll down there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Gloat. you know, I feel like I personally added a lot of value to the team this year. So, you know, this is one for me is the way I think about it. The other five were Knicks, but I feel like I really came to play this year. And so it's, it's a big year. It's a big year. Nice to have the 12th man right here with us. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. I've been looking forward to this podcast. You know, there are a couple things that I think we all universally like. One is documentaries. We love stories. I love stories. There's a new documentary out, by the way, called Boys State that if you haven't seen it is 
very, very much worth watching. William Rusty, I don't just, I haven't I seen it. I actually went to Boys State in Indiana when I was no in way. high school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 looking forward to seeing it. So I wish I had. Uh, it's as good of a documentary. It's almost as good as the Donut King. Uh, we're going to talk about the Donut <laughs> King, but it's unbelievable uh, the way that it was done. The other thing, of course, we love are donuts. I've got a picture of my boys and their grandfather, Kimberly's dad, in front of the same donut shop every summer in East Hampton, New York. And it's just, it's what we do. We go out with grandpa and we go get donuts and I think that those are two things that are universally loved. And of course, on that theme, building into that, we had the Donut King with us on the podcast this morning from Cambodia, which is just awesome. There's an incredible story that's out, and it's the Donut King. It's an incredible documentary. It's got incredibly high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes it's in the 90s, and for good reason. It's just an incredible story about an incredible man and God's faithfulness to him. It involves the President of the United States. It involves the thing we all love to eat. It involves the American dream. It involves entrepreneurship. It talks about a community coming together, uh, and it's a thing of beauty. And so we've got Ted with us on the program. And Ted, it's, it's just a great honor to have you with us. Thank you for joining. Thank you for having me, sir. And it's a great honor for joining the show. Well, Stardust, as we do with all of our guests, take us through your story from the beginning. What's unlike most of our other guests is most of our other guests didn't grow up in Cambodia, where you're now back, you're now back in Cambodia. But take us back there. What was it like living there? And then how'd you eventually make it, uh, make it to America? I was born in 1942 during the World War II, mm-hmm. and we live in a uh, in small poor village near the Thailand border. And my mother moved from China after she got married to my father, and she came to move to live in Cambodia when she was 18 years old. And uh, she doesn't, she didn't speak any Cambodian language. And uh, unfortunately, my father left us when I was four years old, and then my mother had to raise us in the difficult situation and later because the war erupted in 1970 later my, my father asked pardon for my mother and he, my mother forgave him and he came to live with us again mm-hmm. but then when the war erupted in 1970 my parents and my two sisters left behind right after the Rouge regime took over power in 1970 and uh, during the war, I was major in the army, and my job was to oversee the new soldiers trained in Thailand. So mm-hmm. after that, we sent them to the battlefield. So when the Khmer Rouge took over the country in 1975, we chose to go to America as refugees. That's an amazing story, and there's great movies. That I think the Killing Fields. And, and others just talk about it, just a very, very brutal time in a nation's history. And, and you had that, obviously, that first row seat for that. And, and uh, it must have been absolutely amazing. Um, I, I wanted uh, you to just share a little bit about what it was like living during that time. I think that here in America, we're pretty distant from the Vietnam War. Um, we've been involved in, in different wars in the Middle East. Um, um, but nothing that really just completely just enveloped and uprooted society in such a cataclysmic way. What was that like? What was it like to live through that and, 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 and be a participant in that? What are your reflections now 
40, 50 years later? Yeah, uh, during that, that time I was young and the war started in 1970. Before that, the Cambodia is called a piece of island very beautifully until the war erupted in 1970. And during the Pol Pot regime, there was about uh, 3 million people slaughtered by starving, by, by murder, and by lack of the medicine. That is cruel, of course, very cruel to compare mm-hmm. where we live uh, nowadays in America or in Cambodia. Yeah. So I want you to tell us about the story about how you met your wife. I believe it had something to do with you playing the flute on your balcony every night and then throwing a note attached to a stone or, or something like that. Tell us about <laughs> meeting your wife. Well, uh, when I was in high school, in a French school, my wife, Sugantini, she belonged to a high-ranking official, you know, like a princess in Cambodia. Very rich and very powerful family, <laughs> but because we born beautiful, and I kind of fall in love with her. But then uh, I do not know that her villa, prestigious villa, you know, right in front of that small apartment I rent. My apartment is about four story, and her villa is about 100 and 200 meters away. So every night I love you know, blowing the flute. And then uh, every night uh, I just blow it, especially after raining, because in that time the city of Phnom Penh is so small. There's no car, no motorcycle, just a bicycle and walking. And when I blew the flute, the whole town can hear it. And later, I found out, oh, 200 meters from me is a big villa that belongs to Sugantini's villa. <laughs> so I start uh, blowing every night because I knew she lived there. But I dare not talk to her in the classroom. But then I one day, I saw many people around the balcony of her villa. I just wrapped a stone into the paper. And uh, I, I know. So I throw all the way to her balcony and terrace. Uh, up to the building. And uh, luckily, she picked up the note. And one week later, she sent a maid to my building. I don't know how the little maid, 17 years old, found my, my apartment because there's no lift, there's no elevator. So I'm so happy. I said, oh, she got my note. And then she wrote, I heard your flute and it's very beautiful. And my mother always told me, oh, some guy must fall in love with somebody. <laughs> very romantic. Wow. And then, and then I heard that. I said, wow, beautiful. Then I wrote her a note back. That servant, the maid, wait for me to pick up her note and send back to her. And I just wrote very little. I want to be your friend. And that's it. Because I dare not write so many things because I do not know because I'm from countries, men, my mother from Chinese descent. So I kind of shy and also scared, you know. And yeah. then uh, she returned the note. She said, well, aha, uh-huh, very good. Yeah, we can write the note. So we write back and forth, back and forth several times. So one day I just wrote her a little note. I say, what if someday, you know, I don't say I fall in love. One day I, I will jump to your room and jump to your house. And what do you think? And then her answer, her answer very, very short. She said, well, I don't think you can do that. What happened if you jump to the wrong room, to my mother's room. And she's just joking, you know, because uh-huh. she's only 17 years old. She doesn't know 
Oh, how to, to love or be loved? Yet, <laughs> same as me. At that time, I was twenty, I think twenty-one or twenty-two years old. <laughs> so that time, I just look at the window, look at you know palm tree and coconut tree. How to get to her room? Because the next door, also a villa belonged to a French doctor. There's a dog, there's a guard, security guard, and soldier beneath her villa. So when it's raining hard. At two or three o'clock in the morning, I jump from the French villa, climb the coconut tree, I go through the barbed wire, and then go looking for her. Then uh, I reach up there, almost you know, on you know, in roof of the of of the villa, but I couldn't find any door, any window open. But luckily, there's one. I just try to open, and it open. So I jump into it, and there's there's bathroom. And then I said, "God, I should I go back home or so?" No, I said, "No." When I make up my my determination, I must move forward. Then uh, turn left. There's a mini room, about ten room. I don't know which one belonged to her. So I turn left, and the first room, I thought that must be her. That time, I'm to not believe in Lord Jesus yet. I just someone <laughs> in the heaven guide me to the right room. <laughs> But then when I open the door. And then I saw a young lady, a long hair, black hair, you know, facing the the wall. But I kneel down for about half hour. For I half an that. hour. For almost half an twenty to thirty minutes, knee down. I dare to touch her. Maybe she, that's not her, maybe she's her cousin or her sister. <laughs> But then I said, well, I must touch her hair. And slowly, and then she turned to me and she said, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. Who's that? Go, go away, go away! I said, please, please, don't cry. If you cry, I must be killed. I must die. So why are you there here? I said, well, because I love you. And then she said, what I'm going to do in the morning when I go to school here and there? And I said, don't worry. I hide under your bed. I did. I hide under her bed for forty five days. Forty five days. Then uh, and later, her parents found out. And then, uh, oh, oh my God! I don't know what to do. I just jump through the window and run away. Wait a second, fast. hold on. I'm sorry. I got. You said you 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 waited under her bed for how long? For forty five days. For forty five days. Forty five days. Yes, because every time she asked the same the servant, young man, to bought me some food here and there, and the young young girl say. Uh, why? Why you already ate? And then now you ask me to buy more food for forty-five days. And later, this young girl told her mother that there's a man hiding under the bed of your daughter because she afraid to be punished. You know, yeah. And just like that, so I run away. And then, uh, cut the story short, my my mother come from village and she said to ask pardon from her parents. There is no way because uh, I either put your son in jail, he must have trouble. But if your son want to be free, and then your son must listen to me and repeat what we say. And she said first, you met with my daughter and you just say, I do not love you. I'm a playboy. You know, I never love to go to school. And please go back to your parent. And then, you know, after I repeat that, I just pull out the knife. I stab myself in the blood. You know, so her parent called the ambulance. And my Suskantini, she took the sleeping pill. She wanted to commit suicide. <laughs> so later on, uh, the, the parent allowed us to be together. <laughs> that's oh my that's the story. 
All right. I'd like to crowdsource this a little bit. If you and our listening audience have a better story of meeting your wife, I want to hear it. Unbelievable. I'm thinking it's this mix in my mind of, because I'm thinking about movies, of course, it's a mix in my mind of like Mission Impossible meets Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon meets Romeo and Juliet. I mean, all these that's things right, match up. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's an incredible story. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. So let's, I don't, I don't even know how to segue, <laughs> but we, but let's, we're, yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, let's, let's, let's move into the business world, uh, Ted, and let's talk a little bit about, uh, how you became the donut King. So how'd you get involved in a donut shop? How did it start? Take us through all of that. And, 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 and if there's any stabbings or stuff like that, make sure you put that in there too. <laughs> yes. We chose to go to America as refugees. So when we arrived in the Camp Pendleton, uh, we got a sponsor from Peace Lutheran Church and church brought us to the Tustin, city of Tustin in California. And we lived there. And as custodian, the church paid me $500 to clean the church and mow the grass. And then uh, I, I asked the pastor, I said, it's not enough for family of eight people. So I asked for another job. So the pastor of the church brought me to meet the, the owner of mobile gas station. And then uh, we make an agreement. I work from 10 to 6, 10 at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. Okay, that's so I got two jobs. That payment also 500. So later I asked for another part-time job for Builder Emporium. They pay me, I made something like a $200. That's from 6 to 10. So I got three jobs at the time. And then uh, at the mobile gas station, there's a, a small DK donut shop. It's a takeout window shop. So one night, my co-worker, during the busy weekend night, we all have two people attending the gas. So uh, he asked me to watch the gas station. And he, he went to the that donut shop to get some donut. And he said, Ted, you want some? I said, Andy, what's that? He said, sweet Donut, you know donut? I said, no, I never taste donut. I left home since a long time, since uh, six, seven months, so I never taste any pastry. And also be kind of hungry for some sweet stuff. And I taste one, I said, very good, Andy. Can I take some home for my family? I said, of course, take, take all, take all. That, that's all enough for me. So I talked to Sugantini and my children. Oh, they all love it. And then uh, the next time, the Monday night, there's a slow night, so only me attend the, the guests. Then I, when it's quiet moment, I went down to the donut window. I saw a lady, you know, making donut, another lady serving the counter. I asked the lady, please, if I can save for $3,000, <laughs> you think I can buy a shop like this? You know, I just taste the water, you know, because I don't know <laughs> The value of a donut shop, I don't know anything about it. I just, she, she answered. She said, crazy, you know, you don't know how to bake donut and you're going to throw away your saving. Why don't you go to, to La Mirada, the Winchell's house headquarter? You know, they recruit and manage your training. And I said, wow, that's a good idea. And then the next, next morning when I get home and Suyantini told me, hey, I saw a Winchell sign not too far from where we live. So we bowed to the windshield and we talked to the manager. Are you the manager? He said, he said yes. What do you want? I said, can you tell me where is the windshield headquarters? Because I need a job. So, okay. He said, in La Mirada. 
Then uh, the next day, I, I talked to my sponsor. I said, sir, you think you can take me to La Mirada, Vincho's Donut Headquarter? And he said, no, no. Why you want to go there? You already got three jobs. I said, uh, the donut shop sounds better for me. If I own, if I can run a donut shop, my whole family can work together instead of me running around and get three jobs. He said, well, let's try. And then uh, he took me to La Mirada headquarters, talked to the manager. And then he said, Ted is a good guy. He's working hard. And uh, he's major in, in the army in Cambodia. He's a refugee. Our church sponsor him. He should be good for Vincho. And then the manager said, you know, we never employ or recruit any people from that kind of world, from Asia, from Southeast Asia. And Ted, we were the first one. Then he said, well, Ted, are you ready? <laughs> I lied to him. I said, yes, I'm ready, sir. In fact, I did not sleep for all night already. But then I say I don't want to lose the opportunity. And I said, I'm ready. Then he put me right away to teach me how to bathe, to clean the window, clean the bathroom, and, and try to learn how to order the supply, everything. So, oh, I feel so good. Then I got three-month training. So in maybe November, prior to Christmas, I got a store. <laughs> Winchell's donut, donut Shop in Newport Beach. That was a slow store, but it's perfect for my family to run. That's how I get to donut business. <laughs> wow. Wow. So I, I suspect that Winchell wasn't used to people just showing up and saying, hey, I want to get in the donut business. So that's extraordinary just there that, that that door would open up for you. So now you've transitioned over and you've got your first donut shop. And talk our listeners through because our, our listeners are entrepreneurs who take businesses from an idea you know, to try to grow it and scale it. And, but at the earliest of days, trying to understand what's going to make a business successful. So take us through what made that first donut shop successful. And then when did you make the idea and, and when did you feel confident to start to scale? Well, uh, I have to thank uh, Winshaw for the opportunity to train me and to give me a shop. And then uh, it, as I always want to own my own business, as I asked that lady, if I say $3,000, can I open a donut shop with $3,000? After one year of saving, I got about $30,000 because I paid Sugantini serve the counter and then my cousin, I mean, nephew come to help the clean and then we don't hire anybody. There's no payroll. We're baking, we're serving, so we save all the labor and then... I say about 30000 for first year. So that with that 30000 the police come to the donut shop. I say, sir, I, now I got some money from saving in, in America. Is there any way to buy a, a shop, like a donut shop? So, oh, yeah, that's easy. So he went out to grab a registered newspaper, and he looked at the business opportunity. Here, here, look at this section. All the donut shop and grocery store and liquor store for sale. So I look at the donut shop. Oh, I found one saying, oh, here, they only sell for 40000 I say, wow, that's, that's a good one. And then uh, I asked my wife, and we go to La Habra. The first shop we bought, it's called Christie's Donut. That's my, my wife's name. <laughs> when she got uh, American citizenship, she changed from Sugantini to Christie, uh, get the name from the donut shop. So we negotiate and then we put 20000 down. 
and we make a note for three years with a $500 per month payment. So we got a donut shop. <laughs> so when we got that donut shop, I still hold on to the vintage. So I got two shops to run. So with the income combined, I got almost $40,000, $50,000 per year. That's pretty, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. And then when, when did you make the um, decision that, you know, one shop could turn into two or three or ultimately up to 70? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I think in 1975, we have about 50,000 refugees coming from Cambodia to America. So uh, that's a stepping stone for my dream. Because, uh, you know, in donut shop, we need labor. We need a lot of, of help. And at that time, because all our fellow Cambodian American, they don't have job. Because working at McDonald's, you can only earn $2 an, an hour at that time. So it's hard to find a job. So I invite everybody to learn how to make donuts and to sell donuts and, and open donut shop. I call the general, I call whoever I know from Oregon, from Texas, from Washington, Seattle, everybody come to learn. And I pay some money and because I want to help them because they are refugees like me and my countrymen. Uh, and then we opened second store in Fullerton. And when I open, I also train people. And my wife, Christy, also show people how to take care of the counter and place the order stuff. So, uh, so that's how we go from one, two, three, four, five, very, very smoothly because the people. And besides, when we get a strong foundation, then in 1980, there's a second wave of refugees. Uh, that number increased double, 100,000, because, you know, after the Pol Pot regime fallen, and so refugees could escape. So total refugees we have now in America is about 160,000 Cambodian Americans. And because an increasing number demand, and that's how we can increase Russell fire. So mm-hmm. it quickly is spreading around. I love that. I love that. And so you've built up Christie's. You've got all these stores. By anybody's measure, you know, you're quite successful and things are going great. Walk us through how you handled that success and how, how did life change for you and your family? Yeah, uh, we're so happy and we never dream about getting that kind of, you know, lifestyle and the luxury of life. Never. You know, when we come to America in the hope of getting a job and raise our family, that's about all. But now when I see the opportunity, I feel like a power outside from me, but I do not know who at that time yet. But I just know that my luck is not coincident. It's, it's something pushing me or helping me in the dark, but I don't know that. But I'm very happy. Number one, I my life's getting better. Number two, everybody have a job. Number three, I can help my countrymen to grow as me. But at some point, as we know in your story, things didn't stay on the same trajectory and things changed. So you want to take us through kind of what happened when you started making trips to Las Vegas? Well, uh, you know, when I working so busy with my family, with Christine, with everybody, there's no political life, there's no religious life, no social life, just work, work, and work. So one day, a Cambodian friend said, hey, you're working too hard. Why don't you take some time out going to Las Vegas with me? 
I say, where is that Las Vegas? He said, only four hours driving from Los Angeles to Las Vegas. I say, wow, is that fun? He said, yeah, you should, you could see this show and listen to music. And they, they don't mention about like gambling because I don't like gambling. I don't know how to gamble. We went with them. And first time, oh my God, so exciting about lighting, about the street, about, you know, about the whole thing. And we see there's a lot of show, music show, dancing show, and a magician show. But then uh, second time, third time, we just play a little bit on the blackjack table, five, ten dollars. It's not much. But then I become addicted and become a composition gambler. And that make me sorry remorse for the whole life that destroy my happiness, destroy my family, and almost destroy my life. And I thank God that God helped me to clean up. It took me 40 years, like Moses rescued his people from Egypt. It took 40 years to God to the promised land. And it took me 40 years. <laughs> I feel shame, but I thank God he cleaned me, he freed me from the devil. That monster in me, I fought and I won. Thank God for, for the, the mercy and grace. Mm. Amen. Amen. Ted William here. Thank you for sharing that. And if, if I could ask you to take us a little deeper into that journey with God, where along that journey did you meet Jesus? Where did Jesus insert himself into your life? Just kind of walk us through your relationship with God during this journey uh, that he's taking you on. Well, um, I would say the love and my faith for Lord Jesus, I would say uh, in two segments. One is prior 1992, once after 92. Why I say that? Because I only know Jesus in 1990. I got baptized. And let me begin with my mother. My mother not only gave me birth, teaching me and raised me in a hard way, but she also brought me to Lord Jesus' salvation. I have to thank her. Now she's with the Lord Jesus in the heaven. So in 92, I left California, returned back to Cambodia to do politics in Cambodia. So prior to 92, I had little knowledge about Lord Jesus. But after 92, then I know Lord Jesus a lot and start to know him after 92 because 93, I participated the first election in Cambodia. But in 2002, because of political dispute, my life not safe in Cambodia. So I was forced to live in exile back to California from 2002 to 2005. And that's the moment I know Lord Jesus because really without him, I could commit suicide many, many times. And in Long Beach, I stayed there for three years. There's no housing. I live from church to church. And every night I learn Bible. Every Sunday we go to worship Lord in the church. And I asked an old lady of the church, let me stay with her porch of her mobile home. And when I get to shower, I have to knock the door and she opened the door. Here, come in to take shower. So when uh, the, her meal is ready, she knocked the door. Uncle Ted, now come in. So that's how I fall from Donna King to zero. <laughs> I left my young children and young wife in Cambodia, and I cannot afford to send her, my children, any money. And so I feel sad and feel sorry, but I fought and I survived again. So in 2005, I went back to Cambodia, worked in Cambodia. Then I think first time I become penniless, 
1975 as a refugee. Second time after political campaign election, all this, I become penniless again in 2002 when living exile in America. And third time, 2007, I found that my young wife had an affair with somebody and I took the two young children. So I went to live in a coastal city called Gap Province. And now I don't have any penny again. I, so three times I <laughs> live in penniless. <laughs> One, two, three. So after 1932, I knew Jesus very well. Without him, I wouldn't be standing here today. In Gap City, without money, every night I ate a pack of noodles, two children and me, no shelter, no home. So that's how difficult life I'm facing many, many times, very miserable way. Then somebody said, is there any church in Gap City? They said, yeah, there's one. So I went all the way by bicycle. I borrowed a bicycle, took my two children. So it, it's about 40 kilometers per day without food at night and without shelter <laughs> at night. But anyway, we struggled through the hardship. And then I found the pastor. I said, pastor, where's the church? Say here, right here. I said, oh, you see, under the wooden house, and at one o'clock Sunday afternoon, people get together, like a villager and family, about 10, 20 people. I said, can I join worship with you, Pastor? I said, oh, welcome. So I bought a little organ. <laughs> and every time I went to church, I play organ, and people sing. We have joy. We have so much joy. And we keep praying someday, Lord, will allow us to make enough money to build a church. I stay until 2010. Then I got some money. I built a church <laughs> right there, <laughs> the first church. And now I already bought another land in Comport province. So I pray that someday when the funds are available, we build another church, a new one, second one. So that's how I know that somebody is helping me along the way. Now I know who is that. His name is Jesus. So I really want to stay with him and get close to him at the end of my life. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, what an amazing story you've walked us through uh, from being born during the war to leaving to owning, I think you had 70 donut stores at one point and fended off Dunkin' Donuts to, to coming into your market. To, to sort of struggling with addiction that, that, you know, so many of our listeners have struggled with various parts of addiction. We did a, an episode a while back on addiction specifically and, and, and how the enemy can tempt us with so many different things. Back to finding the Lord and starting uh, small churches uh, in, and seeing him thrive and, and, and meet people in those ways. Recently, uh, as we mentioned in the intro, you, you did a documentary called The Donut King, could you maybe share with us just a minute or two, uh, how was it like to, to relive those stories, to relive your life through this filming? Yeah, well, see, the biggest problem I'm, I was facing, that was gambling. And it completely wiped me out, you know, separate of the family. I just uh, first heard my wife, Christy, my children, and hurt many, many other people too, because when we need money, I go to borrow. I never be able to pay back and I feel so much hurt. And when uh, the documentary took me back to America to see all the donut shop, to see the villa, the mansion that I usually live in Mission Viejo, 
and the deluxe condo in Newport Beach and go went back to Las Vegas. <laughs> no, just few remorse, but there's nothing I can do except I thank God he gave me a new life and I'm very happy. I live in peaceful now. Thank you. And, and, and Ted, as we, as we come to a close, you may not know our final question is always along those lines. We love to ask and see how God connects our listeners and our guests through his word, through the Bible. And I would love to ask you if there is a, a scripture or a story from the Bible that maybe God has been uh, using in your life during this time. And if you wouldn't mind sharing that with our audience. I know each time when I went through pain, I know he has another plan for me. Each time I went through a difficulty, I knew something's going to happen to me. So now I know that he has another plan for me. And I don't know what's the plan. I, I prayed so many times before I came for this interview. I said, Lord, I'm I just like Moses. I'm not a good speaker. <laughs> and I feel shy. I don't know how to put testimony all together. I don't want to disappoint you. So I please ask him to put his word in my mouth. <laughs> so now I don't know what to say, except that I love Jesus. I would sacrifice my life, my soul to him. And I know one day I want to live very close to the, the second church that I'm going to build. And now we just wait for the funding. And uh, I would like to build a house right by the church so I can live close to him and serve more and, and spread the gospel and spread good news about him. I just want to follow Jesus. Yeah, amen. Let him give the words to speak. That's, that's the Jesus I know. I don't do it well sometimes, but that's the one I know. What a great testimony and story. We really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your prayers, for our podcast, and for our listeners, and just, just grateful for you. Well, so, so much grateful for having me, sir. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. We are very grateful for the opportunity to serve you, the larger faith-driven entrepreneur community, and we want to stay connected. The best way for you to do that is to sign up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. We derive great joy from interacting with many of you. And it's been very rewarding to see people come to the site and listen to the podcast now from more than over 100 countries. But it's even more important to us that you feel like this is your show and that you'll help make it something that best equips you on your entrepreneurial journey, one that you're proud of and one that you're going to share with others. Hey, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help from many of our friends, executive producer Justin Foreman and program director Johnny Wills. Music is by Carl Kegwell. You can see and hear more of his work at summerdregs.com. Audio and editing by Richard Barley of Cornerstone Church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm.